So we're here today in the writing eerie of David Nichols, um, and we did have David unveil his new novel, Us, at the Salon. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, um, that recording isn't available. So David has very kindly agreed um, to read again for us today, and somehow it felt even more special being in the place where the book was actually written. So hello, David. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, so do you want to... Do you want to Give us a little bit of an introduction yes. to the novel. A little context, yes. Okay, so uh, this is from the new novel, Us, and it's, uh, it's a love story and a family story, and it's, uh, it's about a man called Douglas Peterson who's woken up in the middle of the night and told by his wife that when their son leaves home for college, she's going to leave too. Uh, and Douglas loves his wife and desperately wants her to stay. And over the course of the summer leading up to her departure, he has to get through what might, may well be the very last family holiday they have together, uh, which is a grand tour of the European cities. So uh, as he travels around, he looks back at, at the marriage and the story of the family. And this is, um, this is an extract actually from quite late in the book, uh, at a point where Douglas is starting to feel that he's maybe drifting away from his son, Albie. So this is from a chapter called How a Father Should Be. Connie and I argued. Raising Albie accentuated the differences between us, differences that had seemed merely entertaining in the carefree days before parenthood. She was, to my mind, absurdly informal and laissez-faire. To take an analogy from botany, she imagined a child as an unopened flower. A parent had a responsibility to provide light and water, but also to stand back and watch. He can do anything he wants, she said, as long as he's happy and cool. In contrast, I saw no reason why the flower should not be bracketed to a bamboo stick, pruned, exposed to artificial light. If it made for a stronger, more resilient plant, why not? Of course, Connie made him do his homework, but still she felt that his natural qualities and talents would make themselves known unaided. I did not believe in natural talents. For me, nothing had ever come naturally, not even science. I had been obliged to work hard, often with my parents standing at either shoulder, and saw no reason why Albie shouldn't too. As to the accusation that I wanted him to be something he was not, well, yes, of course I did. Because what is a parent for, if not to shape their child? And... Albie could be maddening, quite maddening, self-pitying, irresponsible, lazy, and was I really so oppressive and joyless, so short-tempered and ill-humoured? I meet other boys' dads at school events, sports days and fundraising barbecues, note their avuncular ease, the joshing tone, like football managers coaxing a promising young player. I'd watch them for clues. Albie's best friend, Ryan, had a father, a farm worker, Handsome, stubbled, frequently topless for no good reason, always smelling of beer and engine oil. Mike was a widower, bringing up his son in a shabby bungalow on the wrong side of the village, and Albie became infatuated with this pair, would go there after school to play violent video games in a house where the curtains were perpetually drawn closed and the weekly shop came from the petrol station. I went to pick up Albie one night, edging past the caravan, the dismantled cars and motorbikes and barking dogs to find Mike, with his shirt off, sat in a deck chair and smoking something other than tobacco. Hello, Mike. Any sign of Albie? He raised a can in greeting. Last I saw, he was on the roof. 
Okay, on the roof. Up there. They're doing target practice. Okay, okay, they, they have a gun on the roof. Only my old air rifle. On cue, I felt movement in the air near my ear as a pellet pinged off the cement mixer and ricocheted into the unmown grass. I looked up in time to see Albie's grinning face disappearing behind the guttering. What can I say, said Mike. Boys'll be boys. Ryan's house became a kind of paradise that summer. Ryan's dad, a kind of god. He let them drive the van, climb towering trees, go night fishing. He'd drive them to quarries, the two of them bouncing around in an open bed truck and hurl them off high rocks into the black water. The rustier and sharper an object, the more exposed the wires and blades, the more suitable a toy for the boys to play with. They welded. He let them weld. Mike never sat Ryan down to patiently explain the periodic table. There were no school nights in Mike's domain. Oh, no, life with Mike was just one long burning mattress. I think I'll be spending too much time at Ryan's, I said, after one more revision session and was abandoned in tears, bribes and acrimony. We can't ban him, said Connie. Forbidding it will just make it more appealing. A notion that I found alien. When my father forbade something, it became forbidden, not appealing. Sometimes Mike would drop Albie home at some ungodly hour and he and Connie would stand in the front garden, talking, talking. He's very charming, she'd say, flushing slightly on her return. He's sparky. He's got a twinkle. I think it's admirable the way he brings up Brian on his own. Admirable. What was admirable about letting your kid run wild with no thought to his future? What about my work? The years of late-night study that had been required to get me there... Albie had no desire to come and see the lab and meet my colleagues. If anything, he had a vague contempt for it, part of a growing political consciousness that he refused to debate with me. What does Ryan's dad do exactly, I'd ask? Albie didn't know, but he knew about the girls, scarcely more than teenagers, that Ryan's dad brought back from the pub. He knew about the roll of banknotes that Mike kept, squeezed into the pocket of his greasy jeans. A showdown was inevitable and came at the school's annual parents and teachers quiz, part of the never-ending jamboree of social events to raise funds for a new theatre, because it's always a new theatre that's needed, or a pottery kiln, or a piano, never a new centrifuge or fume cupboard. (laughs) I like to think I'm not too bad at quizzes. I know things, facts, equations. It's the way my mind works, always has been. And not just science, either. As a teenager, I was entranced by the Guinness Book of World Records and memorised great trunks of it. Temperature of the sun, speed of the cheetah, length of a diplodocus. These facts were my party trick, although they rarely came up at parties. Never mind, because while some knowledge had faded, certain key elements, highest mountains, deepest oceans, flags, speeds of light and sound, pie to many, many places, were as indelible as tattoos, Connie would be there to cover art, music and culture, and I think that the Petersons felt quietly confident as we entered the sports hall. Sorry, no spouses on the same team, said Mrs Whitehead, who had told me that very week that Albie lacked basic numeracy skills. Oi, Connie, over here, over here, shouted Mike, resplendent in a boiler suit, unzipped to the navel, and I noted how, suddenly giddy, Connie practically skipped across the hall to join him. Albie went to sit with Ryan on the benches and I cast around for a prospective team. 
settling on a shuffling huddle of parents loitering by the door as if about to bolt. Not the most prepossessing band of contestants, but never mind, I raised my hand to Albie and allowed myself to imagine the conversation in class the next day. Your dad was on fire last night. He carried that team, pie to 18 places. Your dad, he knows his stuff. I understand, perhaps more than anyone, that intelligence is not the quality a son most values in a father. Mike, as far as I could tell, was stupid as a wall. But it would do no harm for Albie to see me win at something, and in a public forum, too. We were offered bottled beers and a selection of snacks, and took our place at our trestle table. Few activities in life are more unpleasant to me than the task of deciding an amusing name for a quiz team. I have undergone surgical procedures that were less painful. Why couldn't we be red or blue or green team? After long deliberation, it was decided, for reasons I can't bring myself to recall, that we would be the cranium crushers, with a K, and that I would be captain, or presumably captain with a K. Mike and Connie's team were called Mobiles at the Ready, which got a laugh but made me anxious because that kind of anarchy is just intolerable to me. I pushed it out of my mind and thought about deepest lakes, longest rivers, highest peaks. A whistle of feedback, and we began. Of course, the quiz was a travesty of what I understand by general knowledge. The music questions were skewed heavily towards the current pop scene, the sports questions almost entirely towards football. The news and current affairs were trivial and tabloid in nature. There was nothing at all on science or geography, inventions or mental arithmetic. We did what we could, but Mike's team, the aforementioned mobiles at the ready, were a tight little huddle of whispers and giggles, Mike and Connie head-to-head at its centre. Yes, they hissed to each other. Well done, write it down. It seemed that Mike was not as dim as I'd imagined, at least in respect of song lyrics and celebrity tattoos, and Connie's hand gripped his forearm tight. Yes, Mike, yes, you are brilliant. Elsewhere, other teams were cheating in a supposedly light-hearted way. You could hear the tap-tap-tap of tiny keyboards, phones bleeping in pockets, and as the evening progressed, my indignation increased, magnified by the bottles of beer we were encouraged to buy in aid of the theatre fund. Hope began to fade. I slumped in my stackable chair. And now, said the quizmaster, our penultimate round. Flags of the world. Finally. <laughs> While the other teams groaned and scratched their heads, I ticked them all off and showed both thumbs to Albie, who was distracted and didn't see me. Then, who'd have thought it? Name the rivers, name the lakes. I rallied our team, the correct answers accumulated, and it was time for marking. We swapped papers with Mike and Connie's team, and I watched as they laughed and jeered at our answers on pop music. In turn, I shook my head at their suggestions for the flags. Venezuela? Oh, Mike, I'm sorry, no. (laughs) Of course, I was rigorously fair in our marking, but in general, the process was sloppy and ill-conceived. Was it one point for a bonus or two? Eventually, our team's papers were returned with a smug grin from Mike, and immediately I noticed several errors. Clearly, there had been some spiteful down-marking points lost for writing USSR instead of Russia, when in fact USSR was the more accurate answer. Too late, though, because now the results were being announced. Sixth, fifth, fourth, third. I looked to Albie, sitting forward on his bench. 
In second place, the cranium crushes. Mike and Connie's team had beaten us by two points. There was much applause and punching of the air. Mike and Connie hugged. And from the benches, too, Ryan and Albie were clenching their fists and whooping in that simian way. But one point for each bonus question when we had given them two. Nothing for the USSR. I calculated our correct score, calculated it again. There was no denying we'd been cheated of victory. And I felt I had no choice but to pick up our papers, cross to the quizmaster, and make the case for a recount. For a while, audience and contestants seemed confused. Was the evening over? Not quite yet, not until I consulted with Albie's head of year, Mr O'Connell, pointing out the discrepancies in the marking. Mr O'Connell placed his hand over the microphone. Are you sure you want to do this? he whispered. Yes, I think so. Yes. By now, the hall had taken on the grim and solemn air of a war crimes tribunal. I'd hoped my intervention would be taken in the light-hearted spirit I'd intended, but parents were shaking their heads and pulling on their coats, and still the recount continued until, after what seemed an age, justice prevailed, and it was announced to the half-empty hall that our cranium crushers had lived up to their name and won by half a point. I looked to my son. He did not cheer. He did not punch the air. He sat on the bench gripping his hair with his hands while Ryan draped an arm around his shoulder. In silence, my fellow crushes divided up the spoils, ten-pound vouchers to spend at the local garden centre, and we walked out to the school car park. Congratulations, Doug, said Mike, standing by his transit van with a grin. You showed us who's boss. Then, to my son, with a hateful wink, your dad, he's practically a genius. In times of old, we'd have just gone at each other with clubs and rocks. <laughs> Perhaps that would have been better. Anyway, the three of us drove home in silence. For as long as I'm alive, I never, ever want to talk about this evening again, said Connie, quietly, as she unlocked the front door. And Albie? He went upstairs to his room without a word, contemplating, I suppose, just how very clever his father was. Good night, son. See you tomorrow. Standing at the bottom of the stairs, I watched him go and thought, not for the first or the last time, what an awful feeling it is to reach out for something and find your hand is grasping, grasping at the air. <laughs>